It was the end of a 20-year war in Asia. The original reason for deploying troops seemed distant, and many Americans could no longer see the point of continuing merely for the sake of avoiding defeat. A young senator was summoned to the White House for a briefing with the president. Joe Biden was 32 in 1975 and representing Delaware in the Senate when America was searching for the exit in Vietnam. Biden reportedly told then-President Gerald Ford that the situation was hopeless and that, in his view, America should get out of Vietnam as soon as possible. Two weeks later, Saigon fell. There have been lots of parallels with Vietnam since the fall of Kabul to the Taliban this week. Joe Biden is more aware of them than most. Has he learned the lessons of history? Or has he applied the wrong template to a very different war? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and each week we discuss one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why was America blindsided by the collapse of the Afghan government? We'll look back at jubilation in America when another foreign power was driven out of Kabul, ask what this means for America's power in the world, and we'll ask what the US leaves behind after 20 years in Afghanistan. With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the US digital editor, and James Astle, the Lexington columnist and Washington bureau chief who also has spent a lot of time over the years reporting from Afghanistan. James, let's start with you. How's your week been? It's been okay, John, though I think like many people who have been involved in some way journalistically or more seriously, shall we say, in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, it's been a, a process of of shock and perplexity and some anxiety about people that I know and still keep in touch with it in Afghanistan. This this is a nightmare for Afghans, especially middle-class Afghans in Kabul, who to some degree been sheltered from the war that's been raging in large parts of the country. The reality of, of, a, of a Taliban advance into the major cities, even into Kabul, had just not really been processed or imagined by many people before this week or so, I think. Well, as you say, we'll get into all of that in a minute. Fazman, how about you? How's your week been? Uh, my week has been fine, thanks. I, Unlike James, I've spent no time in Afghanistan, but I have been watching the events unfold there with anxiety and with you know no small amount of shame as an American, although I have to say not as much anxiety as I would have, I think, if I were Ukrainian or Lithuanian or, or Taiwanese for what it says about America's willingness to stick by its commitments. Okay, well, we've got a lot to get through this week, so let's get into it. We'll begin with the sheer speed of the collapse of the Afghan army and government. Despite his deep knowledge of foreign affairs, including a dozen years as the senior Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Joe Biden's record is mixed. He opposed the first Gulf War to liberate Kuwait, but he supported the second one to remove Saddam Hussein. When he was Barack Obama's vice president, he argued against going forward with the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. In the biggest call of his presidency so far in Afghanistan, has Biden added to that list of mistakes? John, you haven't reported from Kabul yourself, but you have been talking to various American analysts this week. Yeah, this week I spoke with Laurel Miller. She has had a number of conflict-related positions with the 
U.S. government most recently until mid-2017 as the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan at the State Department. She now heads the Asia program at the International Crisis Group. I started by asking her whether what we've seen unfolding in Afghanistan stemmed from an intelligence failure. I reject the idea that it was an intelligence failure. I think that is a red herring that is only promoted by those who want to cast blame on others. The scenario of rapid collapse was always a plausible scenario. Was it the 60% scenario, the 90% scenario? You know, that's difficult to say, but I would say it was at least the 40% plausible scenario, even if a more protracted conflict was a somewhat higher probability scenario. And, you know, even when I was in government, I mean, even six, seven years ago, we were talking about the potential for rapid collapse as and when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. And that was when the Taliban was not in as strong a position as it is now. All of the contributing factors that led to the collapse were well known. You didn't need intelligence information to know what those contributing factors were. There's an enormous volume of publicly available information about that. And there was no new factor introduced in recent days or weeks that led to the collapse. It was all the longstanding um, weaknesses on the Afghan government side and relative strengths on the Taliban side because of the strategy they had been pursuing over years that led to the collapse. I think the intelligence failure argument is also a red herring because it's a misunderstanding of how intelligence assessments work. You know, it is not a perfect prediction of the future. Can you talk a bit more about the collapse and the strategy that led to it? I mean, what what caused such a rapid collapse of the Afghan government and army? It was a combination of political and military factors. On the political side, there has long been concern. I mean, it's well predating the Biden administration and predating the Trump administration about lack of political cohesion on the Afghan government side. And I know that the Biden administration in recent weeks has reinforced a message of you must pull together if you're going to lead your country through this. Uh, And President Biden, you know, quite remarkably openly blamed uh, former Afghan President Ghani for not heeding advice on this. But there was no reason to expect that advice to be heeded. That's advice that has been delivered to President Ghani uh, ever since he first came into office. And to think that if you bang your head against that wall one more time, it's going to crack and they're going to really pull together and uh, and that he would win the loyalty of other political factions and, uh, and the power brokers or supposed power brokers in Afghanistan was just a, a false hope. On the military side, it has long been known that the Afghan 
military did not have the numbers of fighters that they were purported to have. There were not 300,000 fighting forces on the government side, as U.S. officials have been saying in, in recent weeks. Moreover, and here's where the military and political intersect, in recent months especially, but even years, President Ghani had had a tendency to constantly shift around the leadership of the military forces, essentially creating leadership instability within the fighting forces. And, you know, that is a recipe for self-inflicted weakness. Do you think that al-Qaeda and other transnational threats and groups may find safe haven in Afghanistan again? Some of those groups have a presence in Afghanistan still, not necessarily at any kind of organizational leadership level, but individuals, elements still present in Afghanistan. Probably the most threatening group that has a foothold in Afghanistan is the Islamic State. They have a self-declared province that covers Afghanistan, the Islamic State Khorasan province. But they are a threat to the Taliban as well. And the Taliban has opposed the IS presence and probably can be counted on to keep that under control, or at least they will endeavor to. I don't expect the Taliban to eliminate the remaining al-Qaeda presences. They've never, in fact, promised to. (laughs) Even in the deal that they signed with the U.S., what they essentially promised was to keep a lid on them, uh, but not to eliminate them. And uh, I think that will continue to be their policy. But will they be able to keep a lid on them, even if they are so inclined? That's another matter. James, most Americans, I think, are in favor of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. And you haven't heard too many politicians over the past few years arguing for keeping American troops there indefinitely. But the criticisms that we've heard of Joe Biden this week mainly are that the way this has all been managed has been incompetent, that there's an intelligence failure, an idea that Laurel Miller is sceptical of, and also that the administration just hasn't managed withdrawal well. That, In other words, this withdrawal could have been done in a more orderly fashion. Do you think that's a fair criticism, or is it really a fiction to think that when you've decided to get out of a country militarily, you can, you can do so in an orderly way? The withdrawal has been a, a fiasco. That's an unvarnishable reality. Images broadcast around the the world of desperate mobs of Afghans hanging on to the landing gear of American military planes as they leave Hamikaze International Airport for one of the last times. Those same desperate Afghans falling to their deaths from hundreds of feet, having clung onto the plane after, after takeoff. When those American cargo planes landed in Qatar or wherever wherever it was, they were at first unable to open the doors because there were human remains clogging up the landing gear. This is disgraceful, humiliating for America, and plainly seems that far more meticulous, sensitive to fast-changing reality planning should have been able to to mitigate or, or prevent. So on the very narrow question of whether this has been a preventable disaster that we've seen and they're still seeing in the airport in in Kabul. Of of course it is. And the administration, especially the president, who's put, put such a personal stamp on this policy, is absolutely culpable for that. 
James, how do you think America should have managed this withdrawal, ideally? I mean, going back to last year, Donald Trump held talks with the Taliban in Doha. There was an attempt to increase troops then and force them to force the Taliban to come to some kind of power sharing agreement. They essentially waited that out. And then Donald Trump concluded and then Joe Biden agreed that the withdrawal would go ahead anyway. Was there a different way for for this to go? The debate in and around Afghanistan has, has always between people promising a perfect alternative solution if their advice was only heeded. And I'm very skeptical that anybody had a recommendation for a perfect alternative in Afghanistan. So so let me, with some humility, respond to that, John. Nothing is certain. Maybe you know, something close to disaster was, was inevitable, whether America stayed in its current sort of fairly light print force, whether it left in a more sensible and protracted fashion. But clearly, the odds of avoiding the sort of disaster that we've, we're seeing, including very rapid Taliban takeover, collapse of the state, embarrassing scenes for America, a very messy evacuation. The risks of all of those things happening would have been hugely mitigated if America had much more patiently over a number of years sort of got its its ducks in line for a withdrawal that was based upon certain conditions. America really went from saying the Taliban are tantamount to Al-Qaeda, we can't speak to these people, they're terrorists, to shutting the Afghan government out of the direct communication between America and the Taliban, which was patently intended just to get a piece of paper signed off by the Talibs, which America could, could say license them for withdrawal. It was not a serious peace negotiation. You mentioned that America sort of cut the Ghani government out of peace talks with the Taliban. To what extent does that reflect America's having backed the wrong horse, so to speak, And to what extent does it just reflect reality? I mean, is there a non-Taliban figure who could have commanded sort of national respect in a way that Ghani never quite managed to do? Well, Ashraf Ghani was elected president. He was elected in in a a messy and contested election, and elections have not been held subsequently. So you could say that his mandate's pretty, pretty frayed at the edges. But nonetheless, he is the democratically elected leader of Afghanistan. So... I don't think America had a great deal of choice. Now, how could they have got Ghani to be more effective? And there's no, again, there's no perfect answer to that. Ashraf Ghani, who is a a World Bank, Western educated, World Bank trained technocrat, is not corrupt, uh, notwithstanding the stories that are circulating in Kabul of him leaving with a chopper full of dollars when he fled the country a couple of days ago. Um, He has many ingenious, technocratic, wonkish ideas for how you build a state where no state was the day before yesterday. But he's arrogant. He's egotistical. He lacks the sort of ingenious political touch that uh, Hamid Karzai, his much maligned predecessor, had with tribal leaders in particular in the southern states. He, he, he understood their politics in the way that Ashraf Ghani just has never seemed to do. OK, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to assess the damage to America's reputation and hear from Dr. Wida Maran, who grew up in Afghanistan, about the legacy of two decades of US involvement there. First, though, the usual reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, then you're missing out. 
This week's issue has lots more about Afghanistan, as well as stories about the boom in green startups and California's coming bacon crunch. You'll find the best offer on a subscription at economist.com slash uspod. The events of this week will have profound consequences for Afghanistan and will also have an impact on America's international standing. When the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan in 1989, a decade after invading, many Americans celebrated. A bloody nose for one superpower met with rejoicing by the other. This is Pat Robertson. Last week, an event took place that, in my estimation, is the most significant event in our lifetimes since the end of World War II. And that, on February the 15th, was the withdrawal of the forces of the Soviet Union from the nation of Afghanistan. Robertson had stood for the Republican nomination the year before the Soviet exit, and, like so many Americans, relished the apparent humiliation of the USSR. The myth of Soviet military invincibility has finally been shattered by a ragtag group of freedom fighters that are known as the Mujahideen, who were initially armed with nothing more powerful than World War I infield rifles. Now you have to ask yourself, why did the Soviets lose? And they did lose. They lost big. They had a puppet government that was completely uh, at their disposal with a, with a native army uh, uh, mobilized for their support. They put in 100,000 crack troops. They filled the air with the deadly Mi-24 Hind helicopters and MiG fighter plane. They brought in the latest tanks, the latest rockets, and in a test of wills between these impoverished people and the best the Soviet Union had to offer, the Russian will broke first. An armored personnel carrier and a supply truck are also hit. The convoy stalls waiting for more support. They turned and ran. They surrendered the ground of Afghanistan, and I'm as sure as I'm standing here that within the next several months, the Najibullah government of Afghanistan will be overthrown. On Afghan army bases, newly conscripted soldiers prepared to defend the Soviet-backed government of President Najibullah and fight the Mujahideen. The Afghan president, Najibullah, has said publicly his regime's survival depends on strengthening the armed forces. Last month's Geneva Agreement made no mention of a ceasefire, and now the Soviets are leaving, the focus of Mujahideen attacks will shift from the Red Army to the Afghan Army. Many Western analysts paint a picture of ragtag, ill-disciplined, badly qualified Afghan forces will be wiped out in weeks by sustained guerrilla attacks. In fact, the Afghan army held out for years, not weeks. But what's remembered now is the humbling of a superpower. The Soviets withdrew from a conflict Gorbachev had described as a bleeding wound. But to the outside world, they appeared weakened. Pat Robertson again. Now, if the Soviet Union and the Russian will broke in Afghanistan, it's going to break again. It'll break in Nicaragua, and it's going to break in Angola. Now, it's the turn of the US to be humbled. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a 
embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. Just over five weeks after President Biden insisted it would never happen, helicopters were evacuating staff from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, and President Biden was preparing to address the nation. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency, but I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. The Soviet defeat in Afghanistan in 1989 was, of course, swiftly followed by the fall of the Iron Curtain and the collapse of the USSR. Nobody's suggesting something like that's going to happen in this case. But nevertheless, what we've seen has been a real blow to America. Fasman, there are a lot of historical parallels here with this US withdrawal from Afghanistan. But let's talk a bit about the future. How do you think what's happened over the past week or so will affect America's other alliances around the world and America's reputation in the world? Well, that's the big question. And as I said at the top of the show, if if I were in Ukraine or Lithuania or Taiwan, I would be very worried right now. It's not just that the U.S. has mismanaged its exit. It's that it looks quite flat-footed and somewhat unsophisticated. Neither Russia nor China has closed their embassies. They must be feeling very pleased right now. And the United States just doesn't seem to have a sense of what its role should be in Afghanistan in, in the near or medium term. It may be true that the withdrawal was always going to be chaotic, but America did look particularly flat-footed, and that can't be heartening to, to anyone around the world who depends on, on American security guarantees and more broadly on the liberal order that, that America built after the Second World War. James, what do you make of this? I mean, some people have said, oh, well, this defeat in America is great news for China and great news for Russia. But to put the counter argument to the one John has just made, if you're in Taipei and you see that the US army fought for 20 years in Afghanistan and that you too have a security guarantee from the US government, you'd think actually 20 years of military commitment is pretty good. You know, it's not really a sign of a flaky superpower that doesn't value its alliances. So, John, the answer's not not straightforward. America has a history of abject foreign policy failure and of, of rising in circumstance to assert its will on the world in a most dramatic and effective way. The defeat that's also been much discussed this week is Vietnam. A far bigger, more painful catastrophe which touched the lives of hundreds of thousands of American people, voters. It was a low point that um, so many Americans felt that the country just wouldn't be able to recover from. And suddenly, under Reagan, you had a confident, strident, uh, economically recovering, globally emboldened America for whom Vietnam was a, a distant and almost irrelevant memory. So it is by no means written that this much more marginal, politically um, tangential defeat uh, in Afghanistan, which has touched the lives of far immeasurably fewer Americans, actually writes the country's future in, in the world. And I think that that is a truth that is deeply known by America's allies, even if 
it's a truth that never seems apparent to Americans in the midst of of disaster where you've got the sort of the Washington media circus tearing its hair out and imagining that all's over for the republic. Now, the question is, I think, whether there are other forces that change that calculation. And I think that there are differences now than there were in the mid-70s. And the differences are primarily that you know, in the mid-70s, though Americans didn't know it at the time, they were already on a track to be the, the one superpower, the, the era of American hegemony following the collapse of the Soviet Union in no small part down to the Soviet disaster in, in Afghanistan was, was coming upon them. That is no longer the case. America is, is facing a future in which it is not the unchallenged global power. The rise of China has changed everything in geopolitics. And in terms of China and Russia being happy about what's happened in Kabul, I'm sure they are. But I also think that's a strange metric by which to judge American foreign policy. I mean, both China and Russia were critics of the American invasion of Afghanistan and the continued troop presence there. So it seems to me that they would have criticized the US government, whatever it decided to do on this. And you do hear when you talk to officials in the administration you do hear this sense that actually if Afghanistan has been a distraction and that they need to focus on this great power competition with China. Now, I think for the reasons James has explained, that's not necessarily an either or. The American commitment to Afghanistan was relatively relatively light. Uh, and so it's not obvious to me that the choice was as clear uh, as as they're presenting it. I turn over in my mind what it means on a sort of policy and grand strategic level, that liberal intervention, the idea of, of, of wealthy, democratic, military-capable countries going to the aid of poor, messy ones, probably out the window now. It feels like we've moved on to a, a kind of different era of, of Western thinking about foreign policy broadly and intervention specifically. And secondly, the dysfunction in American politics is uh, of a far greater order than it was in the mid-late 70s. And we're seeing that right now in the bitter political contestation of what this disaster means, who was responsible for it. There is no moment of national unity, as there was briefly around the end of the Vietnam War, especially in the electorate. The Afghanistan War wasn't really difficult for American voters. It was fought by a tiny fraction of the population overall America didn't suffer many casualties, anything like the, the order that it suffered in Vietnam and Korea. And yet, to hear American politicians, it's sort of a never again, um, you know, political failure by, by the other side. There's no sense of rallying the country. And when you think about what confrontation with China, competition with China might mean in terms of national sacrifice, I think that's a slightly grim prospect. You're also correct that the concern is not with America's reputation abroad. It's with its dysfunction here, right? It, it does not appear to have as strong a faith in democracy and free trade as it did in the mid-70s. And as for the Reaganite figure who's going to sort of bring the country out of its malaise, I don't know who that is. I mean, it's, it's, it's not Joe Biden. I don't think it's Kamala Harris. I don't think anyone outside of a few thousand square feet in, in Tallahassee thinks it's Ron DeSantis. So I'm not sure who that figure is. It, it looks much bleaker to me right now than it does in retrospect. But I suppose that's always the case. Yeah, no, I don't think that figure exists, John. I, don't, I think, you know, we're looking at structural problems in, in the democracy, which, which make it extremely hard to, to reach across party lines. 
Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to ask whether two decades of US involvement have left any positive legacy for the Afghan people. Dr. Wida Mira now teaches at the University of Exeter in the UK, having left Afghanistan for Pakistan and then Canada in her late teens. In the 1990s, she was a child living in the western city of Herat. I asked her how she remembers the arrival of the Taliban then. I was living in Herat. There were fighting going on between uh, Ismail Khan, uh, the governor of Herat at the time, and the Taliban in the outskirts of the city. And then we knew about that. Nonetheless, life was continuing on. And next day, I packed my bag and school bag and went to the school. And they had already closed down the school. And there was a Taliban guy, uh, a Talib, uh, standing in front of the door and just essentially told us, go back to your homes. There is no school. And that was the end of it for me and thousands and thousands of other school girls. It was a very difficult life, extremely difficult, and I always describe it as living at the bottom of a well. We were imprisoned inside our own houses. The only reason was I had the wrong gender. I had the wrong sex. I was not a man. I could not get out. I'm interested in the changes since the 1990s. I mean, what lasting impression will the American presence, 20-year American presence in the country leave? During the past 20 years, people in Afghanistan experienced economic development in the country, infrastructure development in the country, building roads, building schools, building, um, building bridges that cannot be maintained if the Taliban government becomes a prior state and does not manage to um, focus on economic development in the country, does not manage to get Uh, build uh, economic ties and bridges with other countries and uh, does not receive aid from uh, uh, the international community, the economy of the country would also suffer quite greatly. And we have an educated population, educated youth that have not experienced uh, war in the last uh, 20 years. And they had certain level of freedoms. They had freedom of speech. Uh, they had uh, freedom of movement. And they, there were no impositions on them, no laws required them whether they should grow a beard or dress certain ways. All these freedoms um, are at stake right now. And they have, not, uh, they have been essentially taken away from them. The youth in Afghanistan today is very, has been very dynamic and a certain level of development as well in the country. Um, let's talk about media, for example. We have, in a, I have to say we had, um, we had a very dynamic and free media um, in Afghanistan that was much better than any other country in the region. The discussions taking place, uh, social, political, religious discussions taking place on TVs, radios, they could openly criticize politics and policies in Afghanistan, um, bring uh, politicians uh, to the shows and ask them for questions and taking them accountable for their actions. All of that showed to the population that people have a voice. Do we actually, um, can we actually have that right now under the Taliban? It is extremely questionable. Do you think that the changes you've described over the past 20 years can be quickly reversed? Or do you think 
the Taliban, whatever it wants to do, will actually be forced to adapt and govern to the extent that it does govern in a, in a different way, be more tolerant, essentially, of the social changes that have taken place in Afghanistan, particularly in the cities. I will start by saying that it can be reversed and it is already in certain parts of the country. We have signs of, signs of it being reversed in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of access to education, um, so on and so forth. So this is the time that international community should put as much pressure on the Taliban and do all the work right now because this is when, the, if the Taliban continues and becomes disengaged and we do not deal with them right now, in terms of uh, getting the assurances needed of them in terms of women's rights, rights of minorities. Once they establish themselves, I believe that they will go back to what they were in, as in 1990s. John, the Taliban have been on something of a PR drive over the past few days. It's not entirely clear to me why. And the fact that they feel it necessary to do that, I think, is interesting in itself. They've been saying that women will be uh, free to work and to go to school. But if you look at the provinces where they've taken power already, that doesn't seem to be the case. What do you make of those assurances the Taliban have been giving to people in Afghanistan, but also to people in the West? I have no faith in the Taliban 2.0, no faith that they'll be any different than they were before. In 1996, the last time they sacked Kabul, a Taliban spokesman said more or less the same thing, that they have no rancor, that they want to work with everyone. And before he said that, his compatriots had castrated the previous president, President Najibullah, and hung him from a lamppost with his testicles in his mouth. That does not sound like no rancor to me. So I think they're saying all the right things now for a number of reasons. First, there are still British and American troops in Afghanistan. Second, they want access to the $9 billion in reserves that they have abroad. $7 billion of it is with is with the Fed, and America can decide to give them that or withhold it. And I think generally when rebel governments take over a country, they make a big show of saying the right things, of presenting a good face to the world. The real test will come in three or four months when foreign troops have left and they're left to govern Afghanistan to their own devices. I hope that their actions match their rhetoric, but I don't think we should have any faith in, in rhetoric alone. James, do you agree with that? And do you think that the Taliban will succeed in turning the clock back to the late 90s when they were last in charge? Or do you think that something enduring ha has changed as a result of the American presence in Afghanistan, American and allied presence, I should say? Well, John's obviously right that we have no, we've, we've got no reason to, to be confident that the the Taliban are more liberal or more competent than they were when they were stoning people in the Kabul football stadium just a few years ago. They have waged an extraordinarily brutal insurgency in which they have shown no regard for civilian lives and Afghans rightly fear what's what's coming next. That said, I think the more interesting question is how measurably has uh, Afghanistan changed in the last 20 years such that it would be hard for the Taliban to take the country all the way back and perhaps even the incentives for them uh, as a result would have changed such that they, they, they wouldn't want to take the country all the way back. And so the country has changed massively. We heard from Dr. 
Maran that the, there's been a lot of infrastructure built in, in the country. But I think another thing that she touched on is, is really more fundamental, which is the, the, the growth of an educated middle class in Kabul, in Herat, in Mazar-e-Sharif, to a degree in Kandahar, the big cities of, of the country. Ka- Kabul is, is unrecognizable from what it was in 2001. When I first went to the country in 2003, it was still you know, a smoking ruin, really, with a lot of NGOs running around in the Tonia suburbs. Now there are small skyscrapers with mirrored glass and boutiques and uh, internet cafes and, and small IT startups and a, and a thoroughly educated suburban middle class in its millions, if you define middle class quite loosely, who have far higher expectations and a far lower tolerance of the sort of strictures that the Taliban imposed last time around. So I think that it would be very difficult for them to take the country all the way back to the extent that they might try. Well, that that will depend to a degree, I guess, on how much foreign involvement there is and how big the financial and other incentives are, also the disincentives imposed upon them. Um, And we have to see how that unfolds. Really, because the Taliban have been treated as such an unmentionable, you know, unapproachable enemy for most of the last 20 years, we, and I really mean Western governments and their intelligence agencies, still don't have a very good understanding of the group. We don't understand how uh, coherent it is. There isn't one Taliban. There is a coalition of, uh, of tribal and religious interests, mostly Pashtun. And again, depending on how coherent the group is and to, to what extent it can run its own internal politics, we, we may see that that has huge repercussions on the, on the kind of direction it chooses to go in. Well, this has been rather a somber episode, but we still have a quiz before I let you go, John and James. On January the 5th, 1980, in an article titled America Gone Soft, The Economist asked, who invited 40,000 Russian soldiers complete with their quizzling into Afghanistan? Answer, President Carter the American Congress, and American opinion, and those American allies who've dared not believe and have done little to remedy or reverse the crumbling of America's willingness to exercise its power. Quisling, meaning traitor, refers back to a wartime leader who collaborated with the Nazis in which nation? Norway. Norway. Both correct. My Norway is my motherland, so I'm glad you both got that correct and you both get a point. Until 1991, both you, you Norway... Don't, you don't want to forget your own native... Quisling, do you? <laughs> no, quite. Sticking with the Norwegian theme, is Norway's entire population now bigger or smaller than that of the Afghan capital, Kabul? I think smaller. Slightly smaller. It's bigger, but not by much. Ah. Norway's population now is around five and a half million. Kabul's is around 4.3 million. It's a really big city. I mean, James, you, you know it well. Um, I don't. I was surprised to learn quite how large Kabul's population is. Yeah, I've, I've been reading 6 million, John, so I'm going to I'm going to contest Contest that, okay. Well, how you draw these city boundaries is very difficult. Man. We'll have to send that one to Twitter for adjudication. The overall population of Afghanistan is about the same as California's population, about 38, 39 million. So it is a large country that America is abandoning, sadly. Okay, thank you, James. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to our producer, Julia Johnson, and to sound engineer, Tom Birchall. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. 
You can get in touch with us via email. A few people did last week to offer Aaron skiing lessons, so thank you for that. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>